0: Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through His Word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. If you have a Bible, turn with me to the first page. Turn with me to page 1. Page 1. Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, it's going to be on the screen as well. Again, you can access the sermon card digitally if you so desire as well. Genesis chapter 1. read the text. And then we'll pray. Genesis chapter 1. Notice the Bible says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image and our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky over the livestock and all of the wild animals, and over all of the creatures that move along the ground. I want you to notice how creational the language is here. This is not spiritual language out here. This is what we call concrete, earthy language here. He goes on and says, So God created mankind in His own image. In the image of God He created them, male and female He created them. For God blessed them and said to them, Aren't you glad that God's always blessing? He is always, from Genesis to Revelation, speaking true words over people. That's what he does as a dad. He speaks truth over his people. He blesses with his words. And he said, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea, watch this, and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then the Bible says the Lord God took Adam, or man, and put him in the Garden of Eden to take care of it, to tend it. Would you pray with me? We... Ask now, Lord, that you would speak to us. Lord, at the end of the day, the reason we come to church this morning is not for games or not just to enjoy one another or just for fun, but Lord, we come because we know you are a God who said, let there be light, and there was light. And into our confusion, I pray you would speak peace. Lord, into our darkness, I pray you'd speak light. Lord, into our chaotic environment, I pray that, God, you would speak your order, your divine order. God, we need you to speak. Give us ears to hear you speak to us today, Holy Spirit. And we know we'll never be the same in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Years ago, about a decade now, I went back to Chattanooga, Tennessee, where I was born and grew up, to perform my Papaw's funeral, my Papaw Mosgrove. His name was Oscar Mosgrove. Now, Oscar Mosgrove had parents who had so many siblings that he was never actually given a middle name. I used to get a kick out of that when I was a kid. I'd say, Papaw, what's your name, Oscar? What's your full name, Oscar Mosgrove? Well, what's your middle name? Our parents didn't give us. Now, that's, that's, that's exhibit number A. You know you've had too many kids. okay? When you run out of names to give your own kids middle names. okay? And he had a lot of siblings. But he grew up in southeastern Kentucky in a very poverty-stricken area. And at a young age moved to Mowbray Mountain, Suddy Daisy, Tennessee, which is just north of Chattanooga, where I would grow up. And on Mowbray Mountain, his parents went to work the coal mines where they were taking coal out of the hole right of the mountain. And he met a little damsel named Ella Jane Haney in 1951. Ella Jane Haney would become my mamma. I would bury her a few years ago as well. I did her funeral and we buried her. But they live pretty much in the same place and they built a house in the 1950s at the corner of Poe Road and Mowbray Pike. And I remember growing up being there all the time. My grandpa was a professional yard seller, right, garage seller. He had a van where things just junk packed from the front to the back. And he traveled everywhere doing yard sales. We'd wake up early in the morning before it was sunrise, and he's already out in his front yard with his tables, makeshift tables, and he's setting his jeans. And I remember as a little boy going out there and grabbing a hold of his leg, and he had those jeans that grandpas wear, you know, they're like so stiff they stand up on their own. And so he had those Levi's that literally, I mean, I think you could break with a hammer. And I remember he would feed us Hardy's gravy biscuit. That was amazing at 4.30 a.m., right? Out in the front yard. And so, you know, or 5.30, whenever it was. And so, but he lived in this same place. He pretty much, with Ella Jane Haney, my mamaw, went to the same church pretty much all of his life. He lived in that same house. He was a hilarious man, a really, really funny man. He was constantly known at church to give peppermints to all the kids. Now, we We've taken a step up, right? We just put our, our peppermints out on the table for your own desire and liking. But he used to be able to give to all the kids. He was a funny man, always had a joke. He told one of the jokes he loved to tell all the time. Let's hope you all get it better in the first gathering. If it doesn't, I'm never going to use this joke ever again. It went over like a lead balloon in the first gathering, so I'm really out on a limb here. All right? So long story short, a man named James had a son. After he gave birth to the son, the son grows up and gets a wife. After he has the wife, it's time for him to have his own child. So he goes to the hospital, and as he goes to the hospital to have the kid, you know, the wife is just giving labor and delivering the kids there, and literally things are being cleaned up, taking the kid to be circumcised, and his dad calls James, right? He said, son, I heard something exciting happen. He said, yeah, man, something real exciting. He said, I had a child. He said, what was, it? What was the child? He said, it was a boy. And he said, man, congratulations. Just wanted to call you congratulate congratulations. He said, what's going on now? We well, just took him to be circumcised, and said, Dad, I I want to tell you, you know, we gave him a name, right? He said, well, what's his name? He said, Dad, here's my surprise. We named him after you, James. We named him after you. He said, man, that's awesome. He said, now, what did you just tell me? He said, we just took him to get circumcised. He said, he went and got circumcised? He said, yeah. He said, boy, he said, they did that to me when I was younger, and I couldn't walk for a year. (laughs) You don't walk in your first year of life. Y'all got a little more laugh. I got a little more laugh in this one than the last one, okay? But he was always, oh yeah, we're trying, always, always coming with a joke. I stood and officiated his funeral in the funeral place, and the people packed the place because they watched this man live faithfully in one place pretty much his whole life. My other grandpa, his name was Dada. His name was Clifford Kirk, but we called him Dada. He is the all-time winningest coach in the state of Tennessee for high school softball. over 10 state championships at multiple schools. And last November, I went and did his funeral. And when I did his funeral, the church packed out, right? People and players, ex-players and refs and people that are in the Hall of Fame for sports in Chattanooga. And they all came because of this man's stable life. What I I want you to hear this morning is that through those stories of stability, 86 years in the same place, that is actually common to the Christian experience. When you look back in church history, what you discover is that the saints, listen to me, church, have always felt the strong urge to find a place, to find a people, to commit to that people, and to put their roots down. To live what we call the vow of stability. Now, we're in this series called Mouth to Mouth, Breathing Life into Our Relationships. Today, I want to talk to you about Christian stability and how it's our most effective Christian witness, our witness for Jesus in our day and age. What does it mean to live out the vow of stability? Now, most of us in here, we know that the saints of old would have taken vows of charity with their money. That's not new to us, of course. When you were going to become a saint of old, you would take a vow of charity of how you would raise your, your, your resources. We know that saints of old would take vows of chastity for their sexuality. Of course, they want to live upright in a depraved generation. We know that saints of old would take vows of obedience to Scripture. Why? Of course, the Bible is our book. But you know what I have found that most Christians that are unaware of Christian tradition don't really understand? That people all throughout history, that the first vow Saint Benedict ever called the people of God to take. So if you were a person of God to follow Christ, the first vow you ever took was the vow of stability in place. The first vow Christians were to take is the vow of stability. If you read history and you read the Scriptures, you'll realize that saints are always from somewhere. Folks, listen. In our modern context, we think of saints like these free-spirited, free-floating, transcendent icons that are hovering and not committed anywhere. And nothing could be further from the truth. Let's just do an exercise. We have St. Francis of Assisi. We have St. Augustine of Hippo. We have Cyprian of Carthage. We have Saint Teresa of Calcutta, India. The saints are always from somewhere. Saints are always from a place. Each one of the saints of old found their place, they found their people, they set down their roots, and they belonged. Now, hear me. In our postmodern world, listen to me, postmodernity, probably more than anything else, learned and has learned and seems to thrive off of the problem of instability. It doesn't ever confront it. In America, we have a propensity all the time to move on, to try to reinvent ourselves. We don't like one job, we'll go to the next job. We don't like that job, we'll go to the next job. We don't like this church, we'll go to the next church. We don't like this city, we'll go to the next. And we try to have this propensity to move to the next place, to reinvent ourselves, and to try to keep, what? Constructing our lives to our liking. And when we do that, we do that without ever sticking to any one project long enough to create any authentic community. We in the Western world are used to this. We're so... This is so much things in us, we don't even recognize it's actually happened to us. So today, when I start this message, I want to start with the vow of stability, of staying in a place. Let me put a few ideas in front of you. When you talk about the vow of stability, the stability in a place, why does God want that? Well, three reasons. Number one, through the vow of stability or faithful stability, God, watch this, wants to give you a gift. God wants to give us a gift. There is something about a home place. There's something about knowing you're safe and and where you are is safe and knowing where you come from and there's a roof over your head. I can, while I'm preaching today, still feel the carpet of my parents' house under my feet. I can still see the kitchen where I grew up inside of Daisy. I can see the window in my bedroom and out that window a Bradford pear tree and I can still see the basketball court that we created in our own driveway. We had a portable goal and then my dad and I, we poured concrete for one post and had almost like a mini full court. I can still see the aluminum fence in my backyard that looked so big when I was a kid, but I took my kids there this week and that yard don't look near as big as it was when I grew up there. I, I can see those things. And through the vow of stability, listen to me, church, God wants to give us a gift. Now, not, I want you to see something. The very first gift God gives humankind, you know what it is? gift of place. The first gift God gifts Adam with is the gift of place. God took the man and the woman, and what did he do? He put them in the Garden of Eden, and he said, Be fruitful and multiply. You can thrive here. Here's your place, Adam. Subdue it. Rule over it. Isn't it beautiful, Adam and Eve? Isn't it amazing? And they were able to flourish there and grow there. God gives us the gift of place. I think it's very instructive for us to realize also that the first curse after the fall is the curse of placelessness. The first thing that comes on mankind when he falls is he is exiled from his place. The first curse, human feel, is a curse of placelessness. What happens? Adam and Eve are given the gift of place, the Garden of Eden. And what do they do? They take the story into their own hands. Sin enters the story and they are what? They are exiled from the Garden. The first curse... On earth is the curse of placelessness. This is why our hearts ache when we see homeless people on the side of the street. This is why our hearts ache when we see single parents getting priced out of their place. This is why we as God's people try to create a place for others. This is why we meet and talk to our welcome team and our giving gifting teams on a week or a monthly basis because we want when people come here this to be an overwhelming sense of home. We want people to feel welcome here. We want people to feel love and acceptance and forgiveness and to have a place. The first gift to humanity is the gift of place. The first curse of the fall is the curse of placelessness. So what does place do for us? Place gives us three things. Can I give them to you? Place, number one, gives us deep security. Place gives us deep security. In 1945, before Abraham Maslow The great psychologist put together his what we call triangular hierarchy of needs, right? Physiological needs all the way up to self-actualization. Before he gave us our hierarchy of needs, all kinds of sociologists and, and physiologists and psychologists and sages and theologians throughout the centuries have been telling us that a safe, predictable, comfortable place for us is absolutely essential for humans in the quest to becoming humans. Children need to know where they're from. Children need to know there are going to be food in the pantry when they walk into the pantry. Children need to know what, what bed they're going to sleep in every night. Children need to know that they're going to have people that are older that lay their hands on them and that love them and pray for them and constantly encourage them. Can I just tell you where we're at in America? 2.5 million children in America experience homelessness at some point. 2.5 million Last year in the shelter system of our metropolitan areas, there were 2,000 children born in the middle of the night in makeshift shelters, the shelter system. Children should feel blessed to have people lay hands on them in their safe place. And Abraham Maslow knew what so many others have known for centuries, that if you can get that safe place for a child, that will be the safe place from which to launch everything else in that child's life, they now have the security to get started. They have the security to know what it is to be a human and to be loved by those around them. So place gives us security. But you know what else place gives us? Place gives us secure identity. Not only does it give us deep security, it gives us secure identity. Now, I want you to just follow with me for a moment. The church called Dwelling Place Church, it meets in Woodstock, Georgia. That church is literally the church that my children are growing up in here, right here in Woodstock. This village, this people around them. Listen, you all help Meredith and I as parents. It is true that, yes, Meredith and I named our 12-year-old Knox, and we did name our 9-year-old Marley, and we did name her, even from birth, Harper, our 5-year-old Harper. This is true. But let me tell you something. You are the people, the church is the people that are really coming alongside them to give them an identity. To actually really name them, where you're able to say, Knox, you are a mighty man of God and God's hands on you. Marley, you are a servant of the living God. Harper, you are a disciple of Jesus Christ. My five year old is running around this church in a moment when we get done and she loves this place. My 12 year old loves dwelling place. He doesn't just love DP kids, he loves this. This is his home. Marley, she wants to wake up every morning and her, her, her mom sing on the worship team because she wants to get here at seven and she wants to be here and she wants to help giving and gifting teams because she she belongs to this place. And in this church I have, Meredith and I, have extended aunts and uncles who literally come up and they slap my kids on the back. I watch you. I watch you go out in the lobby and you slap Knox on the back as a 12 year old and say, hey I watched you. I know I heard you did really good in your CYB basketball game yesterday. I watched your dad in his Instagram. I saw you knock down some shots and they slap Marley on the back and say, Marley I saw you started practicing clogging. You like to do clogging and they slap Harper on the back. Harper, I saw you and your your little leotard and you looked amazing in your little, you know, your, your, your dance recital that you had. And it hit me the other day like a ton of bricks. My Harper, who is five years old, is growing up thinking that is normal. And I heard the Lord say to me, every five-year-old in Woodstock ought to grow up thinking that's normal. Every child in this community ought to grow up thinking it's normal to have aunts and uncles in a family of God, stable and faithful in the things of God, encouraging them and speaking life to them and declaring God's truth over them. That should be normal for all of our kids. The vow of... Stability in place, it it gives identity and security to people. Place gives us security, but yes, it gives us identity. Listen, the people of God in the place of God that God has planted us, they help us receive our name from God, our real name from God. Zelensky, president of Ukraine, was not even known last Sunday when we worshiped. He was on the Dancing with the Stars Ukraine edition eight years ago. He's been a comedian and a public person. Now he's... The president, just a few years ago when he became the president of Ukraine, he had an inaugural speech like all presidents do. I'm going to share you a quote from Zelensky. Zelensky's become an overnight phenom, a hero, right? I mean, if, if the Lord tarries and we wait two, two, you know, 200 years, in the history books, you need to understand the quote that he told Biden the other night will be at the top of the book. Do you want U.S. special elite forces to get you out? He said, I don't need a ride, I need ammunition. I'm not going to cower. I'm not backing down. I'm staying right here with my people. And you know what he said at his inauguration? This is what he said. This is him. I talked to the pastor in Kiev today. This is is a quote I want you to see. After last night's bombing, he didn't much sleep, but he was still preparing for his sermon in church tomorrow. If the church is still standing, he plans to make his way there and hold services. This is the the church that I talked about a minute ago. But I want you to see this quote from Zelensky. Do you have this quote? You don't have it. Okay. So this quote from Zelensky, this is what he said at his inauguration. He said, To all the chamber. The cabinet. He said, when I go to your chamber, don't want to see my picture on any of your walls. He said, I want you to put picture of your kids all over the walls because we do what we do as politicians for the next generation. Our, Our generation is so attracted to real leadership because we've heard talking heads and platitudes for a decade. And when we see a president put on a helmet and say, I'm going to fight, our hearts are attracted to leadership. Leadership, That's he's only 44 years old, and what? Setting up for the next generation. He's committed to the next generation. Listen, place gives us identity, it gives us security, but thirdly, place also gives us the chance to develop skillful mastery. Skillful mastery. What do you mean, Craig? I had this young kid at our old church, Meredith and I, that we grew up in, and his name was Truman Ross, and he was... He was a daddy's boy. His dad was a handyman who did amazing things and roofs and could build anything. His dad's name was Earl Ross. He was a turkey hunter, so he was a, a friend of mine. Spent a lot of time, and I never forget visiting the workplace. And Truman always wanted to follow his dad, and he'd be out there five years old with his flat bill off to the side, and he had a tool belt on, and he had the, you know, the, the measuring tape on one side, and then he had the hammer on the other side. I never forget me and Dewey. Not, uh, Meredith's uh, dad went out there and he had his nice slacks on one day and we we're looking at this house. And I never forget, he looked at us and he said, what are you guys going to do? Just stand there? You know, like get involved. And, and what was so amazing is because he followed his dad around in that craft and that skill, he became a master at 11 or 12. He's now in the armed forces and he's overseas. But at 11 or 12 years old, his mom started pasting, p- posting Facebook pictures of him building entire structures. Why? place affords us the opportunity to develop mastery. Do you know what it's going to mean for the Moss Grove kids? That they don't have to spend 20 years of defragmenting from their old values and old church life, but they are now able to multiply and compound the work of God done in the previous generation? Do you know when my wife and I were thinking about coming here and planting, you know what literally broke the camel's back? We had pretty much made the decision, but I was in a independent prayer meeting one day for people that are not in our church. And I had a man of God stand up to me and he began to prophesy. He said two things to me. One was that in this season, God would prepare me or want to lead me to become an architect of apostolic ministry. And then he said something else, and I'll never forget it as long as I live. He said, your kid's first memory of church will be in that new methodology and wineskin. They won't have any memories of a previous wineskin. That was it. That sold me. They're growing up in that methodology. They're growing up in this wineskin. It gives us skillful mastery. Think about y'all, Seth and Steph Curry, two of the great ballers on the planet. They grew up with Dell Curry playing in the NBA for 16 years and they thought it was normal to go to shoot arounds. They thought it was normal to hang out with NBA stars. Think of Peyton and Eli Manning. They spent and thought it was normal following around Archie Manning in the NFL and watching their dad play in the NFL. They thought that was normal. Y'all, place gives us security. Yes, place gives us identity. But place gives us the chance to practice and so we can develop our skilled mastery. And what maybe took us 20 years to learn will take our next generation three years to learn. And what maybe took us generations to get right maybe takes them a couple of days to get right. This is what the vow of stability gives. This is what the staying in place provides. So God wants to give us the gift of place and through the vow of stability. Listen, if, if, and that's a big it, if we will stay put, if we will receive the place God has given us, that's an if, if, Folks, I as a pastor can speak until I'm blue in the face at people and say you don't understand really the blessing you have until you commit fully and you wrap your life and get your life wrapped up in the local church context in which people and extended aunts and uncles are going to speak life over your kids and declare God's destiny over your kids and to become a safe haven when you're going through a difficult challenge and so many people because they're in America they don't want to receive the gift God has for them. But if they will... Place will become the greatest gift God gives you. If. but That's a big if. Here's number two. Through the vow of stability, God wants to make us holy. He wants to make us holy. What do you mean he wants to make us holy? You've heard it said church would be great if it weren't for all these people. (laughs) Life would be great if all these difficult people weren't messing with me, right? You know, can I just say something? I think most of us are pretty good Christians when we're by ourselves. Right? I'm a great Christian when I'm living by myself. I don't get impatient with myself. I don't speak curse words to myself. I don't speak curse words to others either. I don't speak cross words to myself. Y'all, I'm good when my kids aren't bothering me. My wife is real good when my kids aren't asking for food every seven and a half minutes. Okay, you're bored. Stop eating out of boredom, right? Ever seen that mom uh, that meme on Facebook where the mom's laying like this and the dad's laying like this and then the kid's laying across them this way and it says H is for hell. (laughs) (laughs) I'm good. I'm good when my kids aren't bothering me. But it's actually the people that make us holy. As we live out our vow of stability in one place, you know what God will do? He will surround us with saints. Watch this. Who will help purify us. Who will help us practice the fruit of the Spirit. Listen, church, the fruit of the Spirit cannot grow in isolation, and it cannot grow in abstraction. Love, joy, peace, patience. When do I need patience? I need patience when someone in my connect group is about to drive me mad. That's when I need patience. When do I need love? I don't need love when I'm by myself. I need love when I'm with EGRs at DP. EGRs are extra grace required people. Okay, That's when I need Love. I don't need joy when I'm by myself. I need joy in the midst of circumstances that wouldn't otherwise in the natural provide joy. And through the vow of stability, watch this, we will what? Be made holy if, that's a big if, we submit to it. We submit to the place. Our places and the people within them have a way of purifying us if we'll let them. I started thinking about last night. I wonder how many times God's up in heaven like, there's a son of mine, and I want so badly to use him in this area. And so he spends years organizing your barista, the person you talk to at the restaurant, in order to get your heart to get you connected to a place because he knows in that place you'll be discipled and empowered, quit for what he's called you to. And then he goes through all of those years and all of that prevenient grace, and then they get here, and boom, they're out. And they cut themselves off again. God's like confused and bewildered. Man, I'm trying to get these people to grow, but they won't stay committed for any length of time to allow the... Fruit of the Spirit to grow. Now, I know I realize I'm talking like weird. I don't find any believers and pastors in the body of Christ that we even talk about this. The gift of place. Being committed. I was thinking to myself, do you know the people that I don't trust on earth? People that I don't trust on earth are those who get into their later years of life, 70s and 80s, and they have to keep making new friends over and over because people who aren't able to travel with the same people over decades. I don't trust people who show up later in life and they don't have any old friends. And I don't mean their friends are old. I mean they don't have any friends that have lasted for decades because it makes me think, well, what has happened to cut you off from every other brother and sister relationship over the last 30 years? What's happened? And through the vow of stability, we plant down and we learn to forgive each other. Now, there are a couple of Trends. I'm going to give you two of them that are at war against this idea of stability. Especially stability in place. They keep us from the vow of stability. Here's the first one. We live in an age of wanderlust. That's America. We live in an age of wanderlust. I hear people in their 20s and their 30s say, You know what? I'm going to move to Nashville for a few years. Or I'm going to move to Dallas for a few years. You know, Dallas has that vibe. You know, that vibe. And tr- yeah, the food trucks, you know, and you don't even, you just get on the little one wheel thing and, and you just go everywhere. Or you get on your, you get on your bike and you just see the food. They, they, Dallas has got an Austin Te- that guy's a, that Austin Te- it has a vibe. And then what happens three years later? Well, Dallas didn't find the genius in me. So I'm going to go out to Los Angeles, you know, and out in Los Angeles, I, I was in my high school theater class. So I've always had a dream to make it big in Hollywood, you know, and then three years later, what? Well, I'm just going to go, you know, New York City, they got the vibe. Now it's post COVID, you know. And then what happens is you look up and somebody has lived five places differently in a matter of decade. And hear me, hear me, listen. I know that those people have probably paid their bills the whole time, but they don't have any relational rootedness. They have financial capital, but they don't have any social capital. And can I just speak for a moment? I know some of y'all think I'm real old school right now. I think in America we have forgotten what social capital means. Even in the church what it means. That there is a village coming around us to help us grow up into the ways of God. And we grow up now in America in this age of wanderlust. And listen, we are living in a great human experiment. Because right now, you need to hear me, we are the first society in human history that is currently choosing to do what we're doing. And I just want to ask, I just think we have to ask ourselves, is it working? Is it working? I mean, that's a, that's a good, honest question. Is the desire to jump from place to place and never be rooted and never belong to anyone in any community, is that working? Rootedness in place. Rootedness. Committed. It's so easy to be somewhere else in America, isn't it? To escape the present moment for something that seems more glamorous. You can, get on your, you can be where your feet are at your couch and you can get on your phone and you can escape and digest somebody else's location and spend your whole night digesting their locations. But the vow of stability is a commitment to something that is maddingly simple but it's impossibly hard in today's culture. So I did something that would help you because I did it for me to help me. I author a little liturgy called Be Where Your Feet Are. Maybe you could just put this in your own prayer journal, your own time. But this is my little statement of how to be exactly where your feet are. Be where your feet are, even when it's hard. Be where your feet are, even when you wish it could be different. Be where your feet are, even when hope feels bleak. Be where your feet are, content in the mundane and the ordinary. Because that's where you'll really find true life anyways. The second thing at play in this age we live in that fights against the vow of stability is that we live and have become a pathologically conflict-avoidant people. We've been conditioned to be pathologically conflict-avoidant. What do you mean? You remember back in Papal Mosgrove's day, Papal Moscow Oscar? He lived on Mowbray Mountain. When he had an issue with somebody or somebody had an issue with him, you know what he did? He invited him to the Greasy Spoon Restaurant at the bottom of the mountain. And they got at the Greasy Spoon Restaurant and they sat down at the booth across from one another and they sat down in front of horribly atrocious black coffee. I mean, just terrible black, I mean, black coffee. that You take a sip and you grow chest hair. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Horrible black coffee. And he sat down with that person and they look at each other in the face and they say, hey, can we work this out? And you know what they do? They sit there until they work it out. They sit there and they talk face to face. They communicate one to another until they find a way of peace. And you know what they do? They go on with their life. What do we do today? We don't do that, folks. We go behind our keyboards. And we get keyboard courageous. You know what I'm talking about? And we don't want to tell. We subtweet everybody else and sub-Facebook post everybody else that's in our our group. And we don't dare talk to them in person. We We are pathologically conflict avoidant. And so we then throw memes out there and then we chip at people and we've stopped the face-to-face conversation of working it out. Where you look at somebody in the face, you talk to them man-to-man, woman-to-woman, and we find peace. We have become, in America, pathologically conflict-avoidant people. That that goes against the vow of stability. So there's a great monastery where a big group of monks live and on the other side of the monastery are where the nuns live. And there's this huge quote it's right in the middle of this entrance to the monastery. I wanted to share it with you. This is what the, the quote says. We vow to remain all our life with our local community. We live together, pray together, work together, relax together. We give up the temptation to move from place to place in search of an ideal situation. Ultimately, there is no escape from oneself. You heard it said, problem is with you is wherever you go, you're there. And the idea that things would be better someplace else is usually an illusion. And when, when not if, interpersonal conflicts arise. When interpersonal conflicts arise, we have a great incentive. Why? Because we're not jumping ship. We're not going to another place. We have a great incentive to what? Work things out and restore peace. This means learning the practices of love, acknowledging one's own offensive behavior, and giving up one's preferences, and what? Forgiving. Forgiving. So I will say to you, church, remember, people are the great purifiers. People are the great purifiers. Meaning, if you want to become a saint, you will not become a saint in isolation. You will become a saint as you learn to look people in the eye, you say the hard thing, you forgive one another quickly, you be patient and you love and you lay down your strife to be the people of God. So through the vow of stability, God wants to give us a gift. He wants to make us holy. And then thirdly, through the vow of stability or faithful stability, God wants to use us to refamily the world. He wants to use us to refamily the world. Let me give you a quick story. Years ago when I was pastoring at a church doing young adult ministry, a young lady comes in who was a sibling of nine other siblings. And she was a late teenager at the time. And she has not not been attending our church, not been attending a church at all. But she now had the freedom out from her own parents' household. And she reached out to our church because a friend of hers had attended our young adult ministry. And she comes into my office and she sits down across from my table one day. And it starts a conversation that would now become a two-year journey with me alongside this family. I never could imagine what would happen. This is like one of those stories, folks, that it's like off of 2020. She'd grown up in an abusive situation where her parents had sexually abused her and all of her siblings from birth. And she told them, the parents told them to be quiet about it because that's what's godly and submitting. Kept them out of church for almost two decades when they finally move into the house. There's fetuses in Ziploc bags in the freezer from where she's miscarried at home. They found that the kids had broken bones in their past, and those broken bones had fused incorrectly. And she comes into my office, and it starts a two-year journey where I will walk with her, not only through that situation with her parents, but court into a new foster. And I never forget after that conversation that day, I meant to reach out to her just to give her a half hug, and she like, immediately flinched and she would later tell me she had never received any healthy touch from a male in 18 years right long story short i say would you come to a small group and we had a girl who was deep in the gift of mercy and she joined that small group and she made the step to go to small group i come in the next thursday church started at like eight o'clock and i come in and she's there at like 6 30 i'm like hey, so good to see you and i hug her and introduce her to another person guess what happens the next thursday she's there again. Guess what happens the next Thursday? She's there at 6.30. She continues to meet with that same group. Her siblings get involved. We walk through this process. She gets fostered by a new family in the church. And watch this. Watch this. This girl gets literally swept up into the family of God and a girl who was literally a complete stranger four weeks ago is literally thriving in the family of God. And What I want you to see, church, is that through the vow of stability, God will use us to refamily the world around us. If we will stay faithful in one place, God will use us to refamily the lost. Let me give you another story. There's a young man, 16 years of age. He grew up in a smaller town right outside of a larger town. He had to parent his parents and parent his older sibling many times. In that situation, he was always a conscientious student, always wanted to remain you know, good in school, but had a deep desire just to have peace in his home. He spent a lot of his childhood breaking up, knock down drag outs, brawls, and just trying to say, God, give me peace. Give me peace in this home. At 16 years of age, he was invited by another friend who was a senior in high school to attend a church and that church happened to be North Chattanooga Church of God and on February 10th 2002 that 16 year old walked into that church and the man came off the stage and greeted him and said hey who are you here with and I and 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 and, and in that moment he said you know I, I don't I'm not here with any of my family I'm I'm here by myself. Oh, that's awesome. And they wrapped their arms around that dude and they got him involved in a small group that happened every Tuesday night. And then they picked him up for church and gave him rides all the time. And what happened is that that young man got wrapped up into the family of God. And what he did not have at that time because his parents were not yet serving God was a family at home to encourage him and strengthen him. How do you know about that 16-year-old? Because I am that 16-year-old. And though I didn't have parents at that time, I had Don Osi and I had, I had Tim McClellan who picked me up and I had uh, Denver Huffstutler who would constantly speak to me the word of God. Listen to me. When you commit with stability, God will use you to refamily the people around you. He will use us to reparent, to refamily those that don't have families around us. This is through the gift of stability. What I want you to see is that when you commit to that stability, You commit to a place, to a people. You put down your roots and then you live in holy routines and you keep showing up and you keep worshiping God and you keep your eyes open for people in need. God will use us to refamily the world just like He refamilyed that girl I told you about. By the way, the middle-aged child in there is now a full-time missionary in the Congo after God got a hold of that family. Saints, this is who we are. Y'all, if I'm a lost traveler in the desert, I can't find hope and healing and direction from a shooting star. I must have a fixed star. Lost people in Cherokee County will find no direction from shooting star Christians. They need to be established, stable Christians who are a witness and a lighthouse to their chaos. And God will use it. Use it in ways you never dream possible. To what? To refamily the world. I did a car yesterday. I do cars. As a side job, I just, I just walked up to the stage to preach to you, and that person who has no idea what I do reached out to me and said, hey, I saw you on Facebook. I want to come be a part of a community. I don't have, I don't have a church family. Listen, people act like people people are so turned off of the gospel, folks. It is easier now than all of history for us to reach out to people who are hopeless and hurting and anxious and afraid and invite them to be a part of a family. To literally stay on them every week. Come to to Connect Group with me. Come to Grow Faith. Don't make it your decision in your mind. I'm not going to come to dwelling place ever again without inviting somebody. To say, God, who can I be used? How can I partner with the Holy Spirit to say, I want to refamily people who need family? to refamily people who are hurting and need to belong and a sense of connectivity. Why? Because I'm stable. I'm committed in a place. The psalmist one day, he was just roofing and reimagining because he he knew God's character and so he just started going off on a tangent. This is what the psalmist said in Psalm 68. This is what he said. He said, God, oh, I know who he is. He's a father to the fatherless. He's a defender of widows. You know who God is? That's God in his holy dwelling. He sets the lonely people into families. He sets them in families. Friends, we may live in a world right now where we know where our next meal's coming from. Some of you are financially secure. But let me tell you something. There are so many people showing up in the places that God has planted you that are lonely and heartbroken and anxious and afraid. And you know what they need? They need you. And they need you to be God's instrument to refamily them. They need you to be the vessel of God to refamily Eugene Peterson, who died, he's with our Lord now. He was talking about the power of the church one day, and he said this. He said, the church is a colony of heaven in a country of death. A little bitty colony of heaven in a country of darkness and pain and political partisanship, and everybody's just madder and madder and redder and redder and more red face and more red face because it's just taking the adrenaline of the culture. We as the church are a little colony of heaven where, listen, church, if this is your church, put down your roots, keep showing up, put your body in a position of faithfulness and keep serving and keep speaking life over these children and see if God won't use you miraculously. So there's faithful stability in place, but then secondly, there's faithful stability in our sexuality. And I'm going to be brief here, but if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul is writing to a church that's highly sexualized. Sexual promiscuity was so common in Corinth that they made it a verb. It's called Corinthianize if you were Corinthianized, you were made sexually deviant. This city, Corinth, had about 1,000 prostitutes, and that was a city for about 1 20th the size of Atlanta, so one in every 30 people in the city was a prostitute. And so Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, and it's not surprising that he's dealing with sexual deviation. Now, some of you, maybe you feel a little off being in church because of a sexual past. Like, if people found out about my history, they wouldn't want us here. No, no, that's not true at all. You need to hear me. You'd be encouraged. Jesus' original band of disciples included a number of people with sexual dysfunctional past. And the early church had all kinds of people with sexual dysfunction in their past. Specifically within the church, some were even saying that an occasional visit to a prostitute was no big deal. So they said, after all, it's just biology, right? I mean, when you're hungry, you eat. You feel better. It's natural. It works the same way. You want to have sex, you have it, you feel better. So in 1 Corinthians 6, what Paul does is he shows him there's a spiritual dimension to sex because God made us. You ready? Here's your nerdy word for the week. God made us a psychosomatic unity. Psycho meaning soul, spirit, right? And soma meaning body. Meaning God has made us body, soul, and spirit. And our soul, body, and spirit are one. Meaning you can't neatly separate one from the other. So yes, it's true that when our body dies, our spirit goes on to be with Jesus, and it is disembodied for a while, but that's not the way our soul and spirit were created to be because even when they're in that state, Scripture says our spirits long to be clothed with what? Clothed with our resurrected bodies. Our soul, our spirit, our body are meant to be united. And so Paul's going to argue that because our bodies are, listen, gods, sex is far from a meaningless physical activity. Sex has a spiritual dimension to it. So look what he says in verse 9. He says, Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Don't be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or males who have sex with males. No thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. Now sexual sin is not the only sin he mentions in that list, but look how many times it shows up in that list. Now look what he says in verse 12. Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Now, if you look there, everything is permissible has quotes around it. To make sense of this passage, you've got to understand what Paul's doing. He's quoting the popular slogan of the day and then rebutting it. It's kind of like if I were to say to you, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. That doesn't mean I approve of that statement. It means that I'm highlighting a horrible phrase in our culture to offer alternative. So I would say, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, but the regrets and the venereal diseases stay with you forever. Okay. Do you see what I did? I said the first statement to identify with culture, but then I rebutted it. So people say, everything's permissible. That's what Paul said. No, he's rebutting what he's saying. He's using the phrase as the popular Corinthian phrase. And look at what he said. Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. So some of the Christians in Corinth has said, hey, we've been freed from the law, and now we can do whatever we want. And you know what Paul says? Your freedom from the law was to love God and to love others. Our casual, open sexual relationships loving others... Is that beneficial to your neighbor, Paul? saying? And then he goes on and he says, everything's permissible for me, but I will not be mastered, look at this, by anything. Meaning, being freed from the law does not mean just giving myself over to sinful desires. You're, you're telling me just because my body desires something, it makes it right? That's crazy talk, right? If my body says, eat a dozen donuts, that doesn't always mean it's the right decision. Sometimes I listen to it. Well, I'm going to have IBS problems for days. Okay. If my body feels like raging, violently raging against the person who cut me off in traffic, I shouldn't obey that. Listen, Christians, our mind and our reason tell us what's right, not our bodily urges. Our mind, God's word. So Paul addresses another Corinthian slogan. Look what he says. Verse 13, Food is for the stomach, and stomach for food. And God will do away with both of them. Now unfortunately, the CSV ends with a quotation after food, which I think is wrong because the whole statement is what Corinthians would say. And what it meant was this. This food is for the stomach and stomach for the food. So when you're hungry, eat. That's all that's happening with sex. Your body has a desire, satisfy, it, and God will do it both. And then when they said God will do away with both of them, that meant God's mostly only concerned with your spirit, not your physical body. He's just concerned with what you believe in your heart. Let me give you another nerdy word. That's called platonic dualism. That's what Paul spends the whole book of Colossians fighting in 1 Corinthians. Oh, my spirit is all that matters before God. No, no, no. Food is for the stomach and stomach for food, and God will do away with both of them, and all that will matter is your spirit. But here's the thing: the Bible never teaches God will just do away with our body one day. It talks about our body in terms of resurrection and redemption. So it's not just discarding. So there's two Corinthian lies about sex, and I want to propose to you they're the same lies in America. Here's the two lies. Number one, sex is just physical, it's like any other biological need. Number two, what you do with your body has no bearing on your soul. Now, before we get to Paul's answer, can I ask us, do we still believe versions of this lie today? Yeah, casual sex between consulting adults, consenting adults, Craig, doesn't hurt anybody. We just had fun for a little while. We were both lonely, no big deal, no strings attached, just a little harmless affair to break up the monotony of marriage. We both agreed it was nothing serious. Or like Katy Perry said in one of her songs, I don't even know your name. It doesn't matter. You're my experimental game. It's just human nature. Some of you are like, how is he up on the latest Katy Perry songs? Some of you are like, that song was 13 years ago. And I'm like, I know, 13 years ago. Like, when I think of secular illustrations to illustrate my points, I think of Run DMC and Ario Speedwagon and Reba McIntyre. Okay, so at least I gave you a little bit something clear. Or Woody Allen, here's what he said. I know sex without love is an empty experience, but as empty experiences go, man, it's one of the best. In other words, sex is just physical just biology. Here's another variation of the Corinthian lie. I should be able to love whoever I want. God doesn't care about who you have sex with. Love is love. Just figure out what works for you. What God really cares about is that you're a good, honest person and that you love people and you're happy. That, my friends, is essentially Gen Z. I'm going to show you a stat. It's staggering to me. When I say it, you're not going to believe it. It's just been released you can find this on New York Times. One in six Gen Zers now identify as LGBTQ or homosexual or bisexual. One in six. So the culture we live in of Gen Z's born 97 to 2002, which if we ever went in war would be also the forefront of our army infantry. Gen Zers. Now, notice after 2002, it's what we call Generation Alpha. We're not talking about Alpha. You can't do that yet because they're not old enough to be polled without their parents' permission. When you talk about Gen Zers, 16%, so one in six of them identify with that kind of orientation. So is the Corinthian lie alive and well? It's everywhere. He goes on and says, verse 13, however, the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. God raised up the Lord Jesus, and he will raise us by his power. He says, don't you know that your bodies are a part of Christ's body? So should I take part of Christ's body and make it part of a prostitute? He said, absolutely not. Don't you know that anyone joined to a prostitute is one body with her? For the scripture says the two will become one flesh. But anyone who is joined to the Lord is one with spirit with him. Paul's answer to the Corinthian lies: sex is not just biology. There's something deeply spiritual about it. So I want to close with these three points. Here's your theology lesson for the day of how to have a stable sexual life. Number one, Paul says God created the soul and the body, the spirit to function as one. You can't do something with your body and not affect your soul. You can't do something with your body and not affect your spirit. And Paul goes back and forth between spiritual and physical oneness. You join with them. You become one with them. Notice Paul uses for his illustration the cheapest kind of sex imaginable. You know what that is? Prostitution. Y'all, if there was ever just sex that was just physical, it would be prostitution. It's with a stranger. It involves no commitment. You're likely to never see each other again. And yet Paul says, in even that 30-minute exchange, two souls are joined. Number two, he said Christ redeemed, died to redeem our bodies too. To redeem our bodies. Verse 14, God raised up the Lord Jesus and will raise us up by His power. And you know what that means? Christ didn't just die on a cross to pay the... Guilt for our sins. He resurrected in a physical body to redeem our bodies. Have you ever thought about this? Had the body not been important, God would have just accepted Jesus' death on the cross and payment for our sins and been done with it. But the resurrected Christ in a physical body shows us that God cares for our physical bodies. He says, verse 13, so the body is not for sexual immorality but for the Lord. It's not stomach, you know, the stomach for food and the food for stomach. It's all of it. It's Jesus' now. And whatever Jesus has purchased with his blood, he should have lordship over. And he purchased my body and my ears and he purchased my nose and my lips and my eyes. He purchased it all. Which leads to number three. Come on, Casey. God designed sex to reenact the most important parts of our relationship with him. You want to talk about a faithful, s- stable sexuality? In Ephesians 5, we see that phrase, the two shall become one flesh, over and over. Here's what it says, verse 31 the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Y'all, this is mind blowing. The whole marriage covenant and sexual relationship, watch this, it fully reenacts Christ's relationship with the church. Watch this. When you make a covenant in marriage, it's just like the salvation covenant. What do you mean, Craig? You stand at an altar and unite yourself to all of them. I gave all of myself to Meredith forever. All that was mine becomes hers. All that was hers, the good, the bad, the ugly, comes to me. It's mine. The wife then takes on a new family name. We exchange rings. We celebrate with a meal. And that night we have sex as physical seal of our commitment, out of which often God will bring forth new life. Each one of those steps is the gospel. Watch this. In salvation, you go to the altar and you say, I do to Jesus. He already said, I do to you 2,000 years ago. He's been at the altar waiting ever since for you to come there and meet him. He's already pledged himself to you. And what happened in that moment? All that was his became yours freely. What was yours? It became his. Shame, shame, guilt, guilt, sin, condemnation. He gladly took on the cross. What was his that became mine? What is it? Righteousness, eternal life. Inheritance with God, all that became mine. I took on his family name. I exchanged rings with him. You know what it's called? Water baptism. We celebrate not with a reception. We celebrate with a different meal called communion. At my salvation, what did Jesus do? He put his Holy Spirit in me, out of which God brings forth what? Newness of life. Every step of marriage preaches the gospel. Preaches the truth. And so the act of sex itself is a physical illustration of the love of God. Psychologists say the deepest desire of the human heart is to be known and to be loved. That's what's happening in sex. Someone sees you fully uncovered and they embrace and receive all of you. That's why sex feels beautiful, by the way. It's an echo of God's love for us. We want to be known and loved. Listen to me. If we're loved but not known, that's shallow sentiment. If we're known but not loved, it's rejection. We long to be known and loved. And even the contemporary nature of sex with two different genders, male and female, shows God's complementary parts day and night, sun and moon, land and sea, earth and heaven. That's why it's not supposed to be woman and woman, man with man. It's complementary of one another. So when I sin sexually, I sin against three things. Number one, I sin against God Himself. I reject his design that he intends. And I turn an act of worship called sex and self-giving to self-satisfaction. But then number two, I sin against the person I'm having sex with because I reduce them to an object of desire. The Corinthian men did not see women like made in the image of God. They saw them like disposable objects. It's a drive through You purchase what you want, you consume and leave. To quote Andrew Wilson, he said, The prostitute is no more than food for a hungry man. Or a toilet for which to relieve himself. I know that's gross but that's basically what we're doing when we're sexually involved in somebody who's not our covenant partner. Reducing it to an object. So it's a sin against God. It's a sin against the person but then guess what? It's a sin against myself. Paul said all the other sins we do it's against others but sin sexually is against ourselves. The easiest analogy I've seen of this is like duct tape. If I put duct tape around my arm and I rip off that duct tape it's going to hurt. It's going to pull some DNA and hairs off of Craig. But then I take that same piece of duct tape and go put it around another person's arm. Now I yank it off. It's going to hurt, but a little less. Then I take that same duct tape and I go over and put it around another person's arm and I yank it off. It's going to hurt less and less. And when we take our soul and we duct tape it to another soul and rip it, our ability to stick to the one God wants us to stick to gets less and less and less and this is why when we can speak to a younger generation raised things of God listen I'm not here to shame you or condemn you today you hear me if you like me have been drenched in sexual sin there is a cross that stands over this place where God took your sin to the cross and he paid the ultimate penalty and listen to me The open, resurrected, empty tomb is God's answer to your empty heart that's been ravaged by sexual immorality. And God can give you peace and love and rub the shame out and rub the guilt out and give you life and life more abundantly. Listen, in our world, I propose to you the stability of place and the stability of a strong sexual ethic might be our most effective witness to a world that is in wanderlust. It's so immoral. Let's breathe life into relationship. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.